You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we want to make this confession like your disciples did. When pressed, would they also leave? They responded, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We confess we could be easily distracted and pulled in every direction by things that are happening all around us, and yet, We're asking in this moment you would draw us to yourself. That you'd cause your people to respond to you in worship and praise. That we would make this confession that you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have what we need. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us. That you'd encourage and speak to your people for our good for our joy. Help us as we open your word to understand what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Uh, It's good to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, Grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 17. And if you need a Bible, some folks will be coming around and can get you a Bible uh, to follow along. Uh, Luke 17, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. I seem to be. I seem to have the cold that everyone else apparently has had in the last two weeks. Um, good morning. As you're making your way to Luke 17, let me ask you a question. Uh, can you think of a time when you were in need of something and someone came and met that need? Maybe you were somewhere and you locked your keys in your car and you needed someone to come and rescue you. Anybody? Right. Maybe you had uh, a need of a little bit of money for uh, rent or an unexpected expense came up and someone close to you in your family or community group or someone nearby said, hey, we have a little extra, we'd like to help you, right? And they step in and they meet that practical need. In moments like that, when someone meets that need, what do we normally feel? What's the normal response? Gratitude, right? You're grateful. You are thankful, And that's a good thing. That's a a normal response. How kind of someone to come and to help you in your time of need. And in our passage today, we see an encounter between Jesus and 10 men who are suffering and in need. And I think the focus of gratitude will be very clear as we read these few verses today. I think we'll all see that pretty easily. But I want us to keep in mind uh, something more as well. That the kind of gratitude that we're talking about this morning isn't merely a superficial thank you, but the kind of gratitude that we see in our passage this morning comes as the the result of a heart transformation. There's something going on under the surface in the type of gratitude that I want to highlight today. And so the heading or the title, if today's message had a title, it would be this. Gratitude and gospel change. 
So let's read our passage today. We're going to read Luke 17, starting in verse 11, and we're going to read through verse 19, and that's all we're going to try to cover today. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, Luke 17, starting in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now, sometimes when we read narrative passages like this, what we're, where we're reading uh, basically an account of something that Jesus said and did, but it doesn't include any specific uh, teaching, like last week when Jesus had his disciples in front of him, if you were with us, and he's telling them, like, this is what it means to forgive, this is what it means to walk in repentance, and in, in a case like this, passages that are narratives like this, that are telling us just part of the story, can sometimes be hard to understand or hard to apply. So one question that we can ask Anytime we come to the Bible, but specifically in narratives like this, is this. Here's a question we can all ask as we come to God's Word, uh, is this. In this account, what I'm reading, what part of the fallen condition of humanity is on display here? What are we seeing about the fallen condition here in our text? Maybe it's a sin or effects of sin on, on all of creation that we see. It's not always a direct sin, but it's just sometimes the effects of it and suffering and brokenness. So that's a question we can always ask as we come to God's Word. Where are we seeing the effects of the fallen condition of humanity? And I think that helps us in a passage like this, because in this passage we can see a couple of different things. One is obvious. One is is just really clearly obvious, because there's a brokenness here that we see right away, that there are ten men who are sick. They are bearing the effects of sin on all creation by having to carry around in their own bodies this sickness and decay, which shouldn't be, right? But, but also, I think we see a, a lack of gratitude even once they're healed. We read that only one of the ten comes back. So, so we see, we're seeing two different things, actually, or maybe layers. We see an external layer, a superficial layer of sickness. The effects of sin on creation is that they have to bear this sickness. But beyond that, internally, there's a lack of gratitude. Something's wrong in the human heart that's beyond just the external disease. So here's the question I want us to keep in mind as we read a text, we read our text this morning. In what ways are we seeking and satisfied with superficial healing? You could probably insert the word only in there, and if I would have thought about this, I would have changed it before today. In what ways are we seeking only or satisfied only with superficial healing? 
And because we're gospel people, what's the gospel answer, the gospel response, if you will, to this fallen condition that we see? In this case, the question that we're asking. So here's the the gospel answer I think we find in our text today, that Jesus is compassionate to meet us in our suffering and is more deeply concerned for the transformation of our hearts and the satisfaction of our souls. It's both. That Jesus is compassionate to meet us in our suffering and, not a but, and is more deeply concerned for the transformation of our hearts and the satisfaction of our souls. So I want us to have that in mind as we pick apart this text. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not, but let's work through this story together as we kind of find this path towards gratitude and gospel change. Now, before we get to these men, these 10 men in this story who need healing, I want to point out where we first see Jesus as compassionate to meet us in our suffering. Luke tells us that Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And here's what's interesting. Culturally, there's a barrier between Jews and Samaritans. They don't like each other. They're outwardly and actively hostile towards each other. There is great, if I can say it this way, racism between the two cultures. And oftentimes, a Jewish person, and likely a Samaritan person, would go out of their way to avoid passing by or having to interact with the other. Specifically in this case, Jesus and his disciples, who are Jewish men, it would be expected that they would find a way around an area where they'd be forced to interact with someone they didn't want to interact with. In fact, popular in his day was a route that avoided contact. But Jesus doesn't take that detour. Jesus kind of goes right through an area where he's almost sure to run into Samaritans and other non-Jews. We see this all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus moves toward people with compassion. That's the theme, if you will, of all of the Gospel of Luke. We'll get to it in chapter 19 in a number of weeks here, a couple of weeks. What is the purpose? Why has the Son of Man, Jesus, why has he come at all? To seek out and save the lost. Not stumble upon them, and I guess, well, I'm here to help them, but to pursue them. To move toward people with compassion. That's Jesus' deal. That's kind of his thing. Okay, and so here, he comes to a small village, and as he enters the village, the story tells us, Luke tells us, that he is met by ten lepers who call out to Jesus for mercy. So that's the first thing I want to highlight in this gospel change-motivated gratitude is this. Point one, there's a recognition of need. These men call out to Jesus because they know they are in need. Now, leprosy in the New Testament encompassed a number of skin diseases, and I don't want to get too... Uh, I don't want to gross you out this morning by trying to describe skin diseases on Sunday morning, like, thank you, we just had breakfast, right? But, but just as, a, as an aside, uh, leprosy of this kind, talked about all through the New Testament, consisted likely of visible sores. The skin would become very dry and ashy, sometimes bleed. It would often affect the nerves in the body and a loss of blood flow to the extremities, So as it progressed, it could result in the loss of fingers and toes and ears. 
And because of the contagiousness of such a disease, those who were chronic, when that infection didn't clear up, they were quarantined into colonies of other lepers that, lepers that would reside kind of outside of populated areas. Little colonies of quarantine. You can just get a picture that someone who's been suffering like this for a long time probably looks pretty rough. Okay? You were separated from your family. You were separated from your community. What you shared in common with others that you were now forced to live with, the thing you shared in common was no longer culture. It might not even be religion. What you shared in common now was your status as a victim of this disease. That was your identifying reality now. And so, standing far off, they know their place, they know what's expected of them, they call out to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And I think this is telling us something, this calling out, this is more than just standing on the corner with a sign saying, please help, kind of passively. They are calling Jesus by name, and they're calling him Master. It's very possible that they had already heard reports of this Jesus who has healed the sick and the blind, has raised people from the dead, and just maybe, if he's coming by our way and we can get his attention, maybe, maybe he will free us of our disease as well. And so these ten men, who clearly recognize their need, plead for Jesus. They know they have a problem. They know that they can't fix it themselves. They're asking for healing. And this is the proper response, right? We'd expect this. Step one, identify the problem. Step two, deal with the problem. And they've likely tried all kinds of remedies and doctors of the day. Nothing has worked. So here they are, outcast, quarantined, in need. And Luke tells us they lift their voices to call out. That's why I don't think this is passive. This is a yell. They are calling out, both in desperation and in wanting to make sure Jesus heard them. And they call out with a beggar's request. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. A couple things here. Two things, really. First, they acknowledge that they need help, and so they ask for it. They actually ask for help which seems like a no-brainer, right? But how often do you and I presume that we're okay, right? We can handle it ourselves. We'll make the plan. We're going to work that plan, and we don't need anyone to help us. In fact, our ability to handle the situation is often seen as virtuous and praiseworthy. I saw a post this week that not only caught my attention, but struck me, kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit, especially in light of this text. Let me read it to you. I don't think I put it on the screen. Just listen. I I saw this. It just came on my feed when I was just downtime scrolling, and it just, it hurt to read it. Listen to to what this, this says. The hardest yet most important realization that you will ever have is that no one is coming to save you. You have to wake up in the a.m., do the workout, get the sun, eat the right food. You have to be the one to change deep-rooted cravings and habits. It's on you. Save yourself. How utterly empty and hopeless and hollow is a statement like that. Now, I'm not saying that we should just fold up like a cheap tent when things get hard. I'm not saying that. 
As parents, my wife and I are often encouraging our children to, to courage, to engage in doing difficult things. Biblically, there's work for us to do that God has prepared for us in advance that we should walk in it, and oftentimes that work is hard to do. I'm not saying that. But how often do we fail to diagnose what's really going on under the surface? How often do we face a challenge and we attribute it all to external circumstances that we can in our own strength overcome and fail and fail to address our own internal need? We refuse so often to admit that we actually do need someone to save us because there are things that we cannot change in ourselves. See, I think these men knew that the problem wasn't primarily economic discrimination, which was likely happening because they probably couldn't do the work they had done before. They were now outcasts and had to do something else. These men probably knew that the problem wasn't primarily that the society in which they lived in or even their own families had shunned them and treated them as second-class citizens, which... The society had, and likely some of their families had. Because I think in their calling out to Jesus, what they're acknowledging is the problem isn't primarily out there. Their cry out to Jesus lets us know that I think they knew that the way to solve their problem was to deal with the root, and that meant they needed to be rid of this awful disease. It wasn't enough to change the idea about the culture around them or the community to say, you should be more welcoming to lepers. What they needed to do was to pull out the root of leprosy that kept them separate. Second, that's the first thing, they ask for help. Second, they ask like a beggar would ask. Have mercy. Have mercy. Asking for mercy means that they don't presume that they deserve healing. They just plead. They beg. So when you and I find ourselves in a place of need, what do our prayers tend to sound like? I know I find myself presuming upon God sometimes more than pleading. Maybe you do too. Maybe your prayers sound a little bit like that sometimes. Do you catch your heart inclined that way as if God now owes you something good this time around? Do you find yourself approaching Jesus with a posture of entitlement as if he's required now to be merciful and do something about your circumstance? I've been so good, Lord. I've endured so much hardship already, Lord. I don't deserve this or I do deserve that. These men beg for Jesus' mercy because they know that they need it and they know they don't deserve it. I think there's something here as a bit of a takeaway for us in wanting to see this kind of gratitude in our hearts. Are we willing to admit that we cannot save ourselves? Are are we able to recognize and be honest about our deeper needs? Are we able to humbly seek the one who can meet that need by pleading and not just presuming? Look at what happens next, verse 14. When Jesus saw them, saw these men who had called out to him, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. They were restored. That's the second thing we see here. Restoration. 
Jesus restores their physical bodies. He actually heals them. And notice how he does this. Look at what he says. He says, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, this might be odd for us to understand. Here's a little background. According to the law of Moses, it was the responsibility of the priest to declare someone clean or unclean. All the way back in Leviticus 13 and 14, we give some instructions from Moses on how it was the responsibility of the local priest to essentially diagnose leprosy. And if it started to clear up, or maybe it ended up not being leprosy or some some other kind of problem, it was the priest who would examine the person and then declare that they were no longer sick, that they were no longer unclean. But only the priest could clear that person of their isolation and quarantine. It was the responsibility of the priest. So Jesus doesn't say in this instance, in this instance, you're healed. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And Luke tells us, as they went, they were cleansed. As an aside, I think this gives us a little insight into the way Jesus views Moses and the law. What these men needed was not only to be made clean, although they needed that, but they needed to be declared clean. And Jesus knew that too. And to be declared clean, they needed to be examined. So Jesus calls them to take a step of faith and to walk back to the priest so that the one person who can declare them clean declares them clean. I think we often assume that miraculous healing is all going to look the same, but all throughout the the Gospels, we see Jesus do all sorts of things that are odd to us. Sometimes he lays hands on them and they are cleaned. Sometimes he speaks a word and just says, be healed, and they are. Sometimes he spits in the dirt and makes mud and rubs it in someone's eyes. That's a new one. Sometimes he tells people, hey, go wash in this pool. And they come out and whatever is ailing them is now just washed off of them. In this case, the lepers weren't healed the moment they called out to Jesus. They weren't healed the moment Jesus spoke. But healing came, in this case at least, when they followed his instructions. And in this case, he says, go show yourself to the person who can declare you clean. Now, can you picture it for a second? Just put yourself in the sandals, if you will, of these 10 men. That as they now make their way back into town, a place that some of them probably haven't been for a while, where they would find the priest. With every step back toward that local synagogue or wherever they would find the priest, a little more color was coming back into their skin. Maybe their fingers and toes started regaining feeling. They were becoming whole. Can you just think for a second of the excitement they must have shared together, seeing themselves and one another being healed as they walked? As they're moving back and they're like, hey, your face doesn't look like death anymore. Hey, you have a finger again, right? Can you imagine that feeling and how I can't, we don't know, but I can't help but picture this like walk back to the priest, not just becoming a full-on sprint. The closer they got, the more excitement would probably well up inside of them. Because if, it, if they were going to be healed, if they, were, if they were being healed as they were going, you know, you know what it meant for them? It means they could return back to their lives. Husbands and wives could be together again. They could see their children. They could go back to their jobs and their families. They could worship together again. They got their lives back. And I think Jesus is pleased to restore these men, to restore their physical bodies, to restore back to them all that they had lost because of this disease, their relationships, their community. But the narrative continues, and I think there's more here. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then one of them, 
when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. This man noticed, as he looked at himself, that he was healed, and it caused him to stop and to go back to Jesus, the one who had healed him, and say, thank you. Now, we're going to talk about his response here in a second, but I want to highlight one thing. As I said, excuse me, I think Jesus is pleased to meet legitimate, practical needs. Jesus is a wonderful Savior who looks on those who are harassed and helpless. He looks on them with compassion and love and pursues them and pours out healing on the hurting. That is why it is right for us when we are in pain to cry out to God, to plead with God to be merciful. It's right for us to ask Him to have mercy on us and to heal us. It's right for us to pray regularly that God might extend His healing hand to those of us who are sick and in pain. Why? Because God is a compassionate and merciful and powerful God. It's right for us to do that. And what's more than that? I think something more than physical healing was going on with this guy. There was something else internally happening. Of the ten who were healed, only one came back. And that's the dichotomy, the, the conflict, the contrast we see now between the nine and the one. And I think it highlights that fallen condition I mentioned earlier. They all suffered under the effects of sin in their leprosy. All of creation groans as we await our final redemption when Christ returns and makes all things new. But more subtle, it seems that nine of these men were satisfied with being healed on the outside. That's really all they wanted. They wanted nothing else. They just wanted their circumstances changed. So they're seeking to have that physical need met, and they are satisfied when they experience that superficial healing. And once that problem is solved, once that need is met, they don't need anything else. So I think it's safe to presume, although we don't know in the text, but it's safe to presume that none of those nine ever come back to thank Jesus. I mean, we don't know that, but Luke makes it a point to highlight the one. So the question I want to ask before we look at this one who returns is this. In what ways are we preoccupied with seeking only the fixing of our circumstances? In what ways are we satisfied only with the healing of our superficial or temporary needs? Remember, I just want to be really clear. It is right for us to ask God for help, to ask Him for healing, ask Him to move in our lives and in our circumstances. But there is a danger here if we are satisfied only with the solving of the problem. You hear what I'm saying? Because then the healing just ends on itself. But the reality is we are more than our circumstances, more than only our superficial need. I'm sure, I'm confident that the nine guys who were healed were grateful that their suffering was over. I'm confident of that because who wouldn't be grateful? But gratitude, like deep Heart gratitude, like what we're talking about, has a distinctly different characteristic, and that characteristic is worship. 
That's the gratitude that I think we're to be after, and that leads us to our third and final point this morning. This kind of gratitude results in praise. Here's what we read about this man who returns to Jesus. We're given kind of three little details about him. One, he praises God with a loud voice. Two, he falls on his face, and that, he doesn't like trip and fall. He's not clumsy. He puts his face to the ground before Jesus. And three, he was a Samaritan. First, his praise to God was loud. I don't know if you see it, but I think there's a parallel between the loudness of his praise and the loudness of his cries for mercy. The two aspects in our little section here that deal with volume come out in two ways. Their cries to Jesus, their master, for mercy and the praise of the one who returns to Jesus. So the question for you and for me as we evaluate our own hearts and the sincerity of our own gratitude to God is this. Is the volume of our praise and the volume of our plea the same? When God meets us in our humble pleading, what should overflow from the heart of a transformed person is joyful praise. That's the first thing. His praise to God was loud and obvious. Two, he falls on his face. Now, we touched on this just briefly earlier, that this man knows that Jesus is the worthy one. He's not presuming upon the kindness of God, and so he humbly puts his face to the ground, literally his forehead on the dirt at the feet of Jesus. This is a posture of humble worship. His worship is directed to God for the gift that he's been given, and he is thankful. Theologian J.C. Ryle writes this about this passage and this man. This, after all, is the true secret of a thankful spirit. It's the man who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality he deserves nothing but hell. This is the man who will be daily thanking and praising God. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well except upon a root of deep humility. Let me read that last part again. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well except upon a root of deep humility. This one man, likely more than the other nine, is thankful because he knows he doesn't deserve the mercy that he's been shown. He is overwhelmingly thankful for the mercy that he's received. The question is, does God's mercy humble us? Are we humbled when we consider how undeserved God's mercy towards us is? Not just once on the cross, but daily. And third, this man was a Samaritan. Remember, if they could help it, Samaritans and Jews did not associate. So not only is it remarkable that a Jewish teacher and his band of Jewish disciples would purposely engage with a Samaritan, but that a Samaritan would turn back around and humbly give thanks and praise to this Jewish teacher. I think right here we get a glimpse of gospel reconciliation. There's a picture here of the nations coming to worship at the feet of Jesus. 
There's a picture of the kingdom here, even in this one little interaction. And Jesus calls attention to it. Look at verses 17 and 18. We're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? As if he doesn't know. He knows exactly where the nine are. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? This guy's not even Jewish, and yet he is rightly responding to God's mercy extended to him. So the question I'm asking for myself and for you and is this. Does our thankfulness for anything, for everything in our lives, does our thankfulness stop there with what we're thankful for, or does it roll up in praise to God? Let me give you an example. My wife, who brings me my keys when I lock them in the car, I may or may not have been talking about myself earlier. <laughs> my wife, when she brings me my keys, I'm thankful to her. Thank you for bringing me these keys and saving me from my foolishness. And in my heart, I want that thanksgiving to roll up in praise to God for his kindness in giving me a helper who's willing to drive across town to a Chipotle or a coffee shop because I was scatterbrained. It doesn't just stop on that. Yes, I'm thankful to her. And the question is, is my heart thankful to God for creating her and putting her in my life and thankful to God for the patience he's working in her to put up with me, right? Gospel change in a person results in a gratitude that is full of praise to God. That's what we're after. Does that make sense? So, so, so here's what I mean. When I say something like Jesus cares more about, he cares about healing our bodies, but cares more for transformed hearts. Look at what Jesus says to this man. Here's why I say what I just said. Verse 19. Jesus says to the man, rise and go your way. Go back to your life again. Your faith has made you well. Some translations read, your faith has saved you. One of the root sins of all humanity is pride. And pride is often seen in us in a lack of proper gratitude and worship to God. Pride says self is central. Humility, and in this case, humble faith says God is central. This man is displaying a measure of faith in God. And we can see it because he responds in gratitude to God for his mercy and grace. His faith is seen in his response to God in humble praise. Essentially, Jesus, I think, is saying this. All ten of you received the gift of healing for your bodies, but only one of you has received healing for your soul. Pastor Alistair Begg, when preaching on this passage, says this, only those who have a personal encounter with Christ and fall at his feet in praise have truly been transformed by God. He has a Scottish accent, so he says it a lot cooler than that. Only those who have a personal encounter with Christ and fall at his feet in praise have been truly transformed by God. Something's going on in the heart of the one who surrenders himself before Jesus. That's what we're getting at. Because Jesus is the good shepherd and has compassion on his sheep. Because Jesus was pleased, I think genuinely pleased, to heal these ten men, removing the curse and pain of leprosy, knowing full well that only one would return in genuine thanks 
tells us that Jesus is aiming not only at the restoration of our bodies, but at the saving of our souls. And that, I think, is a big takeaway for us in this. Because all of us suffer, suffer excuse me, from some form of external leprosy. We all have some level of physical needs that arise in the course of our lives, and we ask God for healing and for mercy and of deeper significance. I think we all also suffer from a form of spiritual leprosy, a disease in our soul because of sin. And God, in His mercy, in His undeserved mercy, sends His Son, who comes right through hostile territory, in order to seek us out and make us clean. God extends grace to us in Jesus, both to heal our superficial needs, but more deeply to change our hearts, to save our souls. And so if we belong to Jesus, if we are in him, the thanksgiving should just flow out of us because of God's grace and mercy. One of the marks of deep heart change, that the gospel has not only transformed our hearts, but is at work to shape us, is genuine gratitude, and not just generic gratitude, but intentional, humble thankfulness directed to God that is poured out in worship and praise. This is you, and this is me. We can recognize our deep need and call out to God to meet us there. We don't presume upon His grace as if He owes us, but we praise Him for His goodness and His grace as he answers our prayers according to his own good and sovereign will. Friends, God has chosen this as his story of redemption. He meets us in our place of need and reaches down to transform our hearts and to rescue us. And we, who have been changed by the gospel, respond with gratitude. And that gratitude is full of worship. So, Let's turn our hearts and our voices loose to praise Him for His goodness and His grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have come to us undeserving, wayward. You come all the way to us to find us, to meet us, and to rescue us. That you not only cleanse us, but you declare us clean. That you are both the healer and the priest who makes us and declares us now clean. Would you cause our hearts to well up in praise? Would you give us eyes to, to see your grace and mercy to us, maybe in a fresh way? You'd cause us to see the places where we might be placing our hope in, a, in merely a change of circumstance. And not to call out to you less or to expect less but to actually cry out to you all the more and trust. Pray you'd cause us and help us 
to worship you for your undeserved mercy and grace to us. Have mercy on us and thank you for having mercy on us. Would you cause your people to worship you for your goodness? In Jesus' name we pray.